Well, good morning, and welcome to Scarlet City Church. Uh, my name is Jay O'Brien. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here at Scarlet City. If you're new, thank you so much for joining us. I and others would love to meet you right after our gathering at the Connection Table. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Luke is one of the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're in Luke chapter 4 this morning. As uh, this past uh, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday and kicked off a season in the church calendar known as Lent, which is a season of preparation. And in order to be successful at something, a person or a group needs to invest in a season of preparation, especially if uh, you're confronted with any type of challenge. There needs to be a time of really preparing to enter into the challenge and into the season. We see this in athletics. Uh, today is opening day for the crew. Any crew fans in the house? Yeah, first game of the year is today. And um, now my, my uh, hunch is that the players uh, haven't been hanging out just at their house sleeping in all day for the past several months since their last game uh, last year. They're not just going to roll out of bed, show up on the field like, whoa, it's game time. All right, there's the ball. Let's, let's make this happen. No, there's, if you know uh, anyone who's ever played com soccer competitively, there's a lot of preparation. You have to run a lot because there's a lot of endurance. There's a lot of finesse in the game. And so you're not, they're not just kicking the ball around. It's very different than what happens at Whetstone uh, with my boys who are seven and five. There's a high degree of preparation that goes into kicking off the season of, of soccer. And the same with football. Football, American football, uh, we have two-a-days. This season, this time of preparation, you don't just show up at game time ready to perform. There's preparation required. We see this in military conflict. You have boot camps and MOS training when before you enter into the battlefield, there's a season of intense preparation. We see this for artists. There's a number, thousands of hours and hard work go into perfecting a craft. There's preparation. We see this in work. There's a season and time of preparation. Now, some things might, we should think more about the type of preparation we get, like parenting. I don't know if, if there's this thought or feeling you had when you show up at your house and you have a baby. You're like, where, where was, I prepared more for football in some ways. You know, maybe, maybe an idea if you're like an app developer, you could develop like an app that lets out a loud crying sound in the middle of the night to get you up out of bed, condition you to get out. Breastfeeding, I don't know what kind of preparation could go in there, but so if you're creative, you could really put some thought into that. But there's this season of preparation. Jesus, before his ministry begins, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this time of intense preparation. And it leads Jesus into the wilderness, into a time of 40 days of fasting, at the end of which he's tempted by Satan himself. Jesus prepares for his ministry both in fasting and in confronting, being confronted by Satan. 
And this account in Luke chapter 4 and in the other, in Matthew and Mark as well, this account parallels the account of God's people, the Israelites, in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16 and 17. God deliver his, delivers his people through the prophet Moses, delivers them from slavery in Egypt. But rather than going directly into the promised land, they spend 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness. Now, the distance, the geography between Egypt and where they were going was not very long. And yet God brings them into this, this location and place and season of preparation. The wilderness represents a place apart from flourishing. God did not, when God created the world, he made it good, a place of flourishing and prosperity. And yet the wildernesses exist in life, places of pain, places that point us away from hope and joy. They exist in the world today. It is not as God intended, yet God will use the wilderness to teach us, to prepare us, to live in a fallen world. So we're going to take the next several weeks and look at the wilderness. And we're going to ask, what can the wilderness of life teach us about flourishing? What can pain and setbacks, how can they equip us to flourish and thrive in life. And this morning we begin by looking at discernment. Who do we follow? Who, do we, who leads us when we find ourselves in the wilderness? And so I'm going to read our passage this morning, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, that sets up where we're going in the next several weeks. It says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in, in the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were co completed, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stone, this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is not written, or it is written, Man does not live by bread alone. We begin by asking the question, who is leading you and me? What is the voice that shapes us and guides us in the wildernesses of life? We see here the Spirit and Satan. Now, as we think about what does it mean to discern the Spirit's leading in our life, how to follow the Spirit, there can be, it can be tempting to think this is actually an easy conversation. Because we imagine, when we think of who's the voice that's shaping us, we might imagine like a little, a little demon on our shoulder or a little angel on our shoulder. And uh, we might think of our good friend Homer, which area, if you can't see it, sorry, it's a small picture in the back. But Homer Simpson, you know, trying to do the right thing in life. And yet the little demon figure here is whispering and saying, oh, hurt people. And the angel on his shoulder saying, no, no, do the right thing. And we can think that discerning the Spirit's voice and leading in our life can be that simple, and yet it's not. It's not. It can be very complicated. It can be very difficult because the Satan and a demon isn't like this figure with horns and a tail whose voice you can always readily know, all right, this is demonic leading right here. And the angel isn't always presented as just, oh, this is the nice, easy path to joy and doing the right thing. There's often a high degree 
of confusion. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. The religious leaders at his time accused Jesus of being led by a demon. The people who were looked to as the spiritual leaders, the discerning ones, thought Jesus was demon-led. Now this should produce in us a degree, a healthy degree of humility. And as we ask the question, what does it look like to discern the Spirit's voice and leading in our life? And so this is where we're going to go this morning, how to live with this sense of discernment, because we may find ourselves like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, thinking we're doing the work of the Spirit when we're actually opposing the Spirit. And so let's press in. How to have discernment toward the Spirit's leading. And uh, first, and, and, and what I want to do here is I want to I invite us into diagnostic questions. You know, so much of the Bible is not presented in uh, just clear terms. There's a sense of wisdom. You know, following God, he leads us into tension. And, we, and wisdom means having the ability to diagnose situations. And so really what we're going to do is we're going to ask some diagnostic questions this morning. And the first is this, as we think of discerning the Spirit's leading. One diagnostic question is, am I led toward belief in God's active presence and goodness? Is this voice, is this leading, is this direction leading me toward belief in God and His presence and His goodness, or is it leading me away? The passage begins, it says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Now, in the gospel, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are both written by a man named Luke. Thankfully, they made it easy on the Gospel of Luke, the, the name of it. And for Luke, the Spirit was a very, very important presence all throughout the Gospel and into the book of Acts. In fact, one of my professors, um, he was a Lucan scholar. His name's Daryl Bach. He, I liked it. He, he, coined the, he uh, came up with the idea. He said he wished that Luke 3.16 was as popular as John 3.16. Because in Luke 3.16, you have... John the Baptist, this prophetic figure, is asked the question, how would someone know when the Messiah is there? They ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that's going to lead God's people into flourishing? And he says no. And he gives, he di- he gives a way of knowing who is. He says this. John says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I am is coming. And I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. For John the Baptist, one of the distinguishing markers of the Christ is he will come and baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, upon announcing his ministry, says this in Luke chapter 4. says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and the regaining of sight to the blind. He says, the Spirit is upon me. And now this comes to fruition in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus dies and he rises again, and he commissions his followers. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit was referenced 57 times in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit was an active presence in Jesus' life. It led him. And the Holy Spirit was an active presence in the early church. Spirit leads. It is present and active. Now, this is contrasted with the devil and with the satanic presence, who's also a very prominent figure in the Gospels. We see it in our own account. Jesus was led to the wilderness where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. Now, there is a part of us as modern readers, we struggle here. We struggle both with, with what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit and what does it look to, like to resist the temptations of Satan and the devil. And I think this is encompassed, uh, this tension we might feel is encompassed in Ephesians chapter 6. Because we're not the only ones who feel this struggle. In the early church, Paul is writing a letter and he says this, a way of reminder. He says, finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Paul's saying, listen, you need to experience the power of God. And then he says, clothe yourself with the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he goes on, and our passage here will be on the screen. He, he clarifies this struggle he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the ru world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You know, for many of us, when we think about, as modern readers, when we think about the struggles of life, it's flesh and blood struggles. It's people. It's a person. It's a, someone we can see and name. So you need to be careful. There's a struggle underneath that struggle, which we might say, you know what, yes, it's, it's systems, it's systemic oppression. It's the rulers and authorities to which Paul will go, no, it's actually beneath that as well. There are spiritual forces of evil. Other translations will say the elemental forces. We, we struggle. How do we make sense of this as modern readers? There's a... The, uh, chair of the psychology department in Abilene University wrote a great book on this subject called Reviving Old Scratch. Reviving Old Scratch. Beck himself, Dr. Beck, was a skeptic, a progressive Christian, and he wondered how do we make sense of this reality of uh, demonic and spiritual forces. And so he wrote this book, and here's, here's how he introduces the book. What he says is, I wrote this book for doubting and disenchanted Christians who find it hard, awkward, or silly to talk about things like the devil or spiritual warfare and who tend to see their fight against evil as the political fight for justice in the world. I embrace that vision of justice, but I'm also going to explain why it's important for these Christians to start talking more about what he calls old scratch. And his story, uh, he, he began to feel this tension when he was a chaplain in a prison. And many of the inmates in the prison would refer to this nickname of Old Scratch as they articulated experiences in their life of being led and compulsed by a figure that would bring them to do wicked 
and evil acts. And Dr. Beck had to, as a scientist, said, if I look at the data, I must take this into account that there are spiritual forces at work in our world. And we see this in expressions, expressions not in just an individual, but even whole societies. As we look at the rise in, in Germany of Nazism, it was based on so much irrationality. Now, Germany at the time was a place of incredible scholarship. Many of the greatest scientists and thinkers in the world were in Germany at this time. And yet, among all this rationalism grew this irrational fear that mobilized a whole community and nation to do something unthinkable. The Spirit works to remind us that there are spiritual forces at work, whereas Satan wants, us, wants to deceive us to think that he's not there. That all we see are flesh and blood, that is the root of the evil, that there's not spiritual evil underneath it. The Spirit leads us to understand that we live in a spiritual world where God's presence and Satan's presence is at work in us individually and communally. And then what does that lead us toward? Another diagnostic question is, am I led toward prioritizing the truth of the gospel? The Spirit leads us to truth. And the type of truth that the Spirit wants us to prioritize is the gospel. Jesus, speaking about the Spirit, said this in John 14. He says, but the advocate, some might translate helper, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything that I said to you. And what is this everything that Jesus has in mind? It's the gospel. It's the core message that encompassed his work. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, and the scripture will be on the, on the screen. He says, he has, Jesus has destroyed what was against us. A certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And then listen to this. Jesus disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul's saying, listen, Jesus on the cross, he paid the penalty that our sin warranted. But it was more than that. It wasn't just that. He demonstrated his power and authority over Satan and evil, the, the uh, forces of evil, the same forces that Paul's writing about in Ephesians. Now, if you think about this, disarming the rulers and authorities. I, you know, we mentioned the crew are playing. Who are the crew playing today? Mike, where, where are you? Who are the crew playing? Who? New York. New York FC. Now, I probably won't watch the game. I should. We should all get behind the crew. But I'll, I'll probably show up tomorrow at work and ask Mike, hey, did we win? And if Mike says to me, the crew won. They disarmed New York FC. They made a public disgrace of them. They put them to shame. They humiliated them, some translations say. They triumphed over them. If, I, if he says that, I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> they disarmed them? 
They humiliated them? I mean, this, I might need to watch this one, actually. Because what he was saying is, they, well, another way to paraphrase is, they showed that they're not even a real soccer team. The crew were so good, they, they exposed the New York FC for what they are. This is what Jesus does at the cross. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities. He exposes them for the fraud that they are. And earlier, Paul is writing about the fraud and the the disinformation of Satan and his schemes. And he puts it this way in Colossians 2. He says, if I can find, there we go. He puts it this way in our passage in Colossians 2, verse 8. There we go. He says, be careful. Paul's warning against false teaching. He says, be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and what? And the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Be careful, he says. Be careful. Satanic forces and demonic Elemental forces of the world will always resort to tactics of disinformation and misleading. When we think about spiritual warfare, I think one of the we can think of it as in modern warfare terms. And in World War II, there was an incredible war, and it pitted two forces, both with a high degree of strength: the axis of evil and the allies. And really, in our world today, that same struggle does not exist. There's one military power that really has the strength to defeat any army that would go against it, and it is the United States. Now, that's changing as China's growing in influence and power and strength. But right now, there's, there's, one, there's one military power that, that rules, in a sense. Now, it doesn't mean that warfare goes away. It means the type of warfare that's waged looks different. And one of the ways that, that um, adversaries of the U.S. will wage war against the U.S. is disinformation. And so we see troll factories in Russia and, and other countries uh, propping up where there are people who are paid a lot of money to spread misinformation to, sh- to sow division in the United States. Satan is not of equal power with Jesus. Paul reminds us here that that Jesus disarms, publicly reveals Satan and demonic forces to be a fraud. And the warfare, the spiritual warfare campaign waged by Satan is one of disinformation. To spread falsehoods, to spread lies. That is the tactic that Satan employs. And one of the ways this can play out is by challenging and and leading God's people to not prioritize the truth, to not prioritize the truth of the gospel. This is how Satan works. He wants to get us off into what Paul says in Timothy are are caught up in sidebar issues, genealogies, and, and deceitful myths. Because Satan knows if I could get them to focus on the wrong information, then I can... I can take them off message. In this political season, you know, one tactic, one savvy tactic by a political opponent is to get 
their adversary, their opponent, off message. To bring up things, events, information that will take them from what they really want to talk about to sidebar issues that might not really be in alignment with what people are about and wanting to hear. Friends, we've been entrusted with the gospel, the good news that through Jesus Christ we are made right with God and there is victory and hope and a future. And it's not rooted in what you've done and what you can do. It's rooted in what's been done for you. This is the greatest message in the history of the world. And Satan wants to get us off message. He wants to get us to prioritize things that are not core. Satan wants us to argue with our brothers and sisters over sidebar issues. The Spirit leads us to prioritize what's most important, the gospel. And then this leads to fruit. How to discern the Spirit's leading. The Spirit leads us to belief in God and trust in God and faith in God. The Spirit leads us toward belief and prioritizing the truth of the gospel. And then this bears fruit in our life. And another diagnostic question is, what is the fruit? As we weigh the voices of the Spirit and of satanic forces, we we need to ask, what is the fruit? Where is this leading? Peter, in 1 Peter 5, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter's saying, look, you need to know what Satan wants. It's not your good. It will be cast as your good, but it's not. It is your destruction. It is to devour you. The Spirit will lead to life and fruit. And so let's, let's think on here. What, what fruit, where is this leading me? And I want to do it by con- contrasting the, the fruit of Satan and this fruit of the Spirit. One is, is there grace? Is this leading me to shame? Or is this leading me to identify and embrace grace, God's grace in my life? Uh, Satan, the, literally the term is adversary or even the accuser. This is Satan's work to accuse, to get you and me to identify first and foremost with shame. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. Would Why would God love you? If they really saw, if they really knew what you've done, you would not be welcomed here at this church. The accuser wants us to live in the bondage of shame. The Spirit leads to liberation. The Spirit leads us to hear the voice of grace. That Jesus didn't die for the worthy. He died for his enemies. As you think about the fruit of a decision or where you're going, is this leading you into shame and the bondage that that brings or the liberation of the love of Jesus? Is there shame or grace? Also, another diagnostic on fruit. Does this lead to abuse or to healing? Satan, in our passage, he tempts Jesus when he's weak. He waits He knows when Jesus is hungry, when he's at his weakest. For Satan, weakness is an opportunity to take advantage. Weakness is an opportunity to enter in and lead someone astray. 
The Spirit, Paul says in Romans, helps us in our weakness. The Spirit of God, when we are weak, seeks to enter in to provide protection and healing. As we think of the fruit of any particular leading, is this leading us to someone exposing our vulnerabilities or is this leading toward protection? In the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit seeks to help. How are we relating to other people? There's another diagnostic when we think of fruit. Is there love for people? Satan wants us to compete with others. The idea that flourishing, that, that I cannot experience flourishing personally if others are experiencing. So there's constant comparison and competition. Another, in satanic leading, the, another person's success only reminds me of my failure. The Spirit is about mutual flourishing, mutual healing, mutual success in life. When Satan leads us, the fruit is we're jealous of the success of others. We're weary of them. We compete with them like on an athletic field in life. Constantly feeling threatened. Someone posts a picture or they share about reading scripture. Oh, yeah, always bragging about them to themselves. All full of themselves. Those, that, that person, that, those Christians. We feel threatened by others. The Spirit leads us to applaud, to rejoice in the success of others. There's mutual flourishing. Another fruit is how do we handle conflict? Satan wants us to take the path of least resistance. Path of least resistance. The Spirit emboldens us to enter in, to fight for what's right, to stand up for justice. Are we taking the path of least resistance? Don't rock the boat. What will people think? Or are we emboldened by the Spirit to stand for and fight for and pursue what is right in the world? And last diagnostic here on the fruit of the Spirit is there death and destruction, or is there life? And not just life. The Bible says that the Spirit brings life. Not just a beating heart, but is there flourishing? The Spirit leads us to find life and joy and flourishing in God. Demonic, de demonic forces will present a way of living that seeks to find life and flourishing in temporary possessions and things. As we think about the wilderness, a few weeks ago, my family, we had the privilege and opportunity to go to Disney World. Amazing. So many sermon illustrations. And Disney World has the, the nickname, what they call themselves, is the happiest place on earth. Happiest place on earth. And when you think about that, the happiest place on earth, it's a place where everyone who works there is a cast member, and their whole job is to present a place that will cater to your every dream and need, to give you the food you want, to give you a ride that's going to make you scream, to have you have experiences that 
that bring to life certain stories you may have watched on the screen. It's to be a place that caters to your dreams and wants, the happiest place on earth. Now, when you go, you observe, it's great people watching. I don't know if it fulfills on the happiest place on earth because what you see are people stressed, anxious, running from one thing to the next. I remember at one point I was standing there just watching and, a, and I saw a lady, I will never forget her, come running and she takes her child, throws it, literally, like throws the child into the stroller, takes off and is screaming at I think it was her husband, but some guy, if it was just some random person, that would have been even funnier. But some guy, and he's running after her. I think, happiest place on earth. Really. Turns out that spending a lot of money, standing around, waiting in lines to be entertained, isn't necessarily the happiest place. Now, Disney World's great. Go there, have fun. But it is not the happiest place on earth. And I think it's very representative. It's a great metaphor for American culture. Spending money, chasing a high, and stressed when what we want to bring us happiness doesn't. Now, if you were at Disney World when we were, and you saw me talking to our boys, hey, listen up, boys. Happiest place on earth, okay? So... <laughs> I hope you enjoy it because if you're not happy in Disney World, you have no shot. If you heard me saying that, you would think, that, that's sad. Because this false version of reality is not what's going to bring you happiness. And this is what the devil does. He presents to you and me a way of living and relating that seeking the happiest place on earth by getting everyone else to cater to our needs. And the Spirit will lead us not into a false version of reality, but into reality itself where sometimes it's a wilderness and there's pain and there's struggle and things don't go how we planned and how we wished and how we dreamed. But the ending the ending is so much more beautiful, so much more glorious than any prince or princess story. All of those stories that grab our heart just speak to the truth that we hunger for inside that one day someone will come and make it all right. And the Spirit takes that promise, it takes that truth, and it ingrains us, ingrains it, plants it, deepens it into our heart. And the fruit of that fruit of that, we can enter into the wilderness. And we know that our temporary circumstances aren't defining our future identity. And we can have joy. And we can have hope. And we can live resisting the voice of the devil that says, it's only flesh and blood. This is all you got. Because we've bought into a story that's much bigger be able to discern the Spirit's leading in your life? Is it leading you to faith and trust in God? Is it leading you to prioritize that truth, that gospel? And it's bear, is it bearing fruit that leads you to protect others, not abuse them? Is it leading to the fruit of living in that hope?
Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us Your Spirit. May Your Spirit lead us, guide us. May it be the voice that shapes us. And God, thank You for entering into the darkness of life, for sending Your Son to experience abandonment so that we could be brought into Your family. Thank You for sending Your Son who is victorious on the cross so we do not need to live in fear. We can live in hope. For the same Jesus who died on the cross and rose again will one day return and call us home. May that message be central to our life. Amen.